1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The The Telegraph. Podcasts. Full contact. In association with Mitsubishi Motors. Drive your ambition.
3: Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. and Mitsubishi Motors. Just a week after securing their second trophy of the year, England now know their opponents for the 2023 Rugby World Cup. Eddie Jones' side have been drawn in Pool D, along with Japan, Argentina, Oceania 1, America's 2. We'll be having England's finest reaction to that draw uh, and he'll be also reflecting on what has been a successful 2020 for them. Off the pitch, the game has been rocked with revelation that a number of former players are preparing legal action against rugby authorities after being diagnosed with early-onset dementia. We'll be discussing the fallout from these cases and we'll be hearing from the RFU Chief Executive Bill Sweeney, who is confident the impending lawsuits will not financially damage the union. The most recognised referee in the game was called time on his international career, two weeks After becoming the first referee to do 100 test matches, Nigel Owens has announced he'll be stepping back from the game and we'll be speaking to the man himself to look back at a glittering career and also what's ahead for him next. And as ever, we'll be taking a closer look at some of the work being done at grassroots level as part of the Mitsubishi Volunteer Recognition Programme. And alongside me today is the former Sevens England captain, Rob Vickerman. Hello, Rob. Hi, Brian. Uh, Well, let's read out the pools for people who haven't got them. Um, pool a new zealand france italy america's one africa one pool b south africa ireland scotland asia pacific two europe two pool c wales australia fiji europe one uh, qualifier then pool d as we've said england japan argentina oceana one america's two um, there isn't the notorious pool of not quite so good in there. They're fairly even. Uh, they all have their own challenges.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think yeah. your eyes are straight away drawn to Pool A to think about New Zealand and France going off. I mean, it is slightly bizarre notion as a caveat to be talking about a 2023 <laughs> yeah. World Cup so far away, which I know probably yeah. grinds your bones internally, Brian. But I think it's exciting to see where these teams could well be, where they are now as our snapshot, but where they could be. Mm. Certainly France would be a scary prospect.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, domestic, uh, well, I don't know if it's harmony, Ireland-Scotland together in the South Africa group.
2: Yeah, again, similar, you know, 2019 World Cup had the similar type of makeup to it. Australia-Fiji, it's the fourth time they've been pulled together as well. So it really yeah. is quite familiar in some scenarios here. Yeah. But I think the first thing I do whenever I see pool draws, probably from my sevens experience, isn't actually to look at the pools, it's to look at the crossovers. Yes. And that's where it gets a little bit exciting. Loads of conversation. I think this is why it's exciting talking about it now. Because if, for our broadcasting point of view, this is going to be a narrative that you can pretty much cling on to for the next two and a half years.
3: Well, I mean, one of the things about drawing it three years out, um, which I mean to me is crazy, um, is you've given, you know, Wales have have, have, have got their own challenges. I mean, who knows where where anyone will be? Um as you say, the 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 you know, the the, the crossovers, it means there are gonna be some tasty uh quarterfinals straight away, doesn't it? No matter what what way it falls.
2: Yeah, and that's why I love it. I mean, whenever you look at these formats, for me, it's always a quarterfinals at the best game. So much at stake. You can't rest on your laurels or doing the maths after it. You're basically talking, you know, you're losing your out. So, yeah, that's where I get excited about it. And, and the whole notion of just seeing this French team build toward 2023 is a frightening notion. I think the world will be looking just at how good they could be. And everybody that knows the prerequisite with France is how they play away from home. No troubles, 2023. They're going to have jam-packed crowds every single time.
3: This is a crystal ball gazing. Do you think they've got the, I think they've got the raw materials in place. Do you think they have the discipline, the building power, uh, the consistency to, to, to get where they, 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 they might do?
2: I think the biggest thing they've got for them at the moment is some sort of unity across the politics side of things. Because if you've got someone like Macron, who was at the draw for this uh, 2023 effort, you know you've got the firepower to say to these Unions, you know, your, your pro 14s, the players' representatives, and the clubs to get their heads together. Yeah. That if they align that, that's what's quite scary. Chat with Ben Kayser just last weekend, actually, about it or saying you're banging your head against the wall sometimes. But hopefully, with it being a home tournament, if there's one thing that's going to galvanize the French bureaucracy, it could well be this, which
3: yeah, that's <laughs> I'm not, not
2: too happy about. No,
3: <laughs> we don't need this, do we? we no, we don't need <laughs> it. Okay, the better, <laughs> exactly. Um, we were talking about the uh, England and their uh, second trophy and whatever. The, to, to a certain extent, I I always thought that the notion that the clubs would, uh, sorry, the countries would suddenly throw off their shackles and play with gay abandon was a bit silly. Um, but it turned out to be a lot more problematic than even I thought.
2: To be honest, I had the the pleasure of being sideline with Eddie Jones post-games uh, and, and asked the questions around the style of play. And, and he was almost kind of talking down the fact that this kicking entity was a known thing that the rest of the world were just slow to pick up on it. And I'm not sure why, like statistically, his words were, the more you kick it, the more you win. So you hearing that from, you know, the, the likes of Eddie Jones's coaching caliber, of course it's going to resonate uh, worldwide. So I think that kicking technique and tactic has been something they've employed and been successful at. And as every single coach will attest to, you play to the laws, you try and break them, bend them, push them, whatever. But I think they were brilliant. Englands just so ruthless, just like Saracens were, probably two or three years ago. Efficient, effective, and energy saving, and that you know really did show towards the end of the French game in particular.
3: Well, I don't know why people have been. I mean, I wrote about this. Let's honestly, I wrote about this. I got this from Eddie uh, over three years ago. So all the modern um, pundits who have been coming in who seem to have missed this, um, because he told me that the stats uh, that his team had produced proved conclusively that the teams that were most successful, and this included the All Blacks, kicked more often. Which is, And I was saying this is why they kick off front foot ball when everyone's saying, no, 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 why are you doing that? We've got ball to run. I said, no, nope, this is the way it goes. And it keeps, it keeps on about this. Uh, and so why people have been late to the party, I have no idea. I, I just don't know why, why they've done it. Look, it, it isn't – and I also made this point in, in one of my columns. People are dishonest about this. If you have a, a kick that rakes 70 metres – and everyone applauds it, or someone gets man and ball, and you get a turnover or a penalty, and everyone applauds it. That's still a kick. It's just as, it's just as much a kick as the one that sails far too far, gives them too much time, and looks boring. I said, you can't decry the strategy unless you decry both. You can't just say, oh, well, uh, that's a good kick, and that's a bad kick, therefore we only want you to kick well. We all know that. The point is, in, in the autumns, to me, England didn't do enough kicking of, of the right quality. It wasn't that they were... they done In that New Zealand game in the World Cup, which everyone by common consent says was one of the best games ever, they kicked only tw- two times less than their average number of kicks in the autumns. So people just, you know, they I want to try and get some clarity into this and get people at least being honest. If you're going to say don't kick, that means don't kick well as well. You kick less all round. And to me, it, it, people have just not looked at this properly. And, and your take, I think... Will, will will surprise some people you you talking about uh, you know them being fantastic because people just want to see things that go well they don't really care they don't really understand that they're all of the same genre so i i, I sometimes I, I i throw my hands up with, uh, with with people who are who are looking at games in this way
2: I think the other thing just to look at is the actual skill required to do what they do. Like a box kick is one of the most difficult things to execute and yet they're getting pretty good at it. You have 60 metre kicks on average are something that they pride themselves on. And the thing that certainly pitch side was really noticeable was when they kicked it, it was actually almost a competition to see who could get there first. So they weren't calling it a kick chase. They were calling it a kick race. And even that, in terms of the camaraderie they had with it, it was really effective to see if everybody buys into it you're playing in the right area of the field. Quite simply, and this was Eddie Jones' mantra, you need to go from 22, your 22 to their 22, as fast as you possibly can. Yes. That fastest transition is not going to be by playing, it's yeah. going to be by kicking. Yeah, And that just seems logical then. It's like tennis. No one no one complains about long-form tennis shots. Yeah, you, know, you, you don't have to mix it up, perhaps, with a drop shot. But still, it's a very, very clever tactic and it was executed beautifully, I thought.
3: Well, the draw for the 2023 Rugby World Cup has been made and England are in Pool D along with Japan, Argentina and the team from Oceania, 1, America's 2 and I'm very pleased to say to react to this we've got none other than the big man himself, Eddie Jones Uh, Mate, before we go on to the draw um, what from from the last World Cup do you think you can take as a lesson for the forthcoming one?
4: Uh, Well it's, it's your ability to get up after a big game. You know, you've know, you always got to be at your best to win the semi-final and, and it's, it's your ability to regenerate, refocus and get ready for the next one. Um, and that's something we'll continually work on for the next three years.
3: Uh, you mentioned the game at the moment is in a power phase. Now, I don't disagree with that. I just wonder about your approach to it. What do you do if it is such? Do you, do you seek to match it, outmatch it? Or find ways to get around it. What's your approach?
4: Ah, uh, well, there'll be some teams, mate, we take on with power where we think we have a power advantage, and other teams will try to will try to play around it. So it's no, no, we don't have a fixed style of play. And and I think that's a bit of a furthy to be honest. You know, I think you you play to your strengths. You always play to your strengths, and then you you tactically manoeuvre your game. Um, to take away the strengths of the oppositions and attack their weaknesses.
3: Can I just ask you to explain, because we, 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 dis- we discussed this a long time ago and I wrote about it, and I don't know why it comes <laughs> as a surprise to people now. The kicking stats, um, you, we were talking about the, the correlation between success and the teams that kick most. Can you explain those?
4: Yeah, well, France, you know, you look at the game on, on Sunday, France stayed in the game for such a long period of time because they outkicked kicked us. Um, and at, at the moment, the, the longer you keep the ball at Test Rugby, the more times you keep the ball over three phases, the greater the chance of turnover, and the more time you turn over the ball, the, the less chance you have of winning the game. Um, so it's a pretty simple game at Test Rugby at the moment. It's not the same at club rugby, and that's where people get uh, a bit confused. At club rugby, you can probably keep the ball up to eight phases. Test Rugby, it's about three um, and, and then you have to be uh, accurate, and you have to be attacking, and you have to be tactically good at, at kicking the ball.
3: See, my, my, my uh, summation was, it wasn't that England's tactics were wrong, it just didn't kick as well as they should have done, and people get it wrong, they think, you know, a, a good kick is a kick, the same as a bad kick. Now, you've we talked a lot about transitioning, um, how far along have you got it, it, with, with, with that?
4: Yeah, no, really pleased, mate. Uh, You know, still very much the infancy, we've still got, like, nappies on. But, uh, yeah, the try that Johnny May scored, which Mara initiated against Ireland, uh, that 100-metre try, brilliant try. And we're we're really working hard on that. We're we're giving a lot of priority. We've now got a a tracking system that can measure the players' work off the ball, which is going to become increasingly important. So we feel like we're we're in a good
3: position to... uh, to take advantage of that in the future. How do you respond to the claims of a lot of people that England are boring? Uh,
4: Well, yeah, I I think it's all about playing good rugby and and every Six Nation game that I've been involved in, and Brian, you've been involved in a lot more than me, they're tough, physical, grinding games Um, and you've got to find a way to win them and the only thing that counts in those sort of games is to win them. And you look at, at 2020, we won the Six Nations twice, once in its traditional form, once in a new form. Now, I don't think any team's ever done
3: that. Well, you have mentioned uh, the, the mantle of favourites. It hasn't always sat well. How do you, when you say England have to accept that, how do you go about implementing that mindset, about them accepting without difficulty the, uh, the, the tag of favourites?
4: Yeah, it's embracing the pressure, uh, understanding that the pressure is coming, finding ways to not to look at it as an opportunity, not as not as a threat. Um, you know, and it took New Zealand eight years to get over that, mate. Um, and we're we're in our second stint now, and I would expect that over the next period of time, you know, with the growing maturity of the team, and I think, you know, people people don't understand how important it is to have a mature team to handle the pressure of, of big games. And, and we're starting to get that now. Um, we've got some good young players coming through that are going to push the barrow. So it's, it's a mindset, but it's also the practice of, of, of doing it, learning from it
3: and then going again. Cause I said, I, I think part of the maturity is enjoying bullying people in the, in the right way. Now people threw their hands up in horror when I said this, I said, no, you know, you've got to enjoy putting people away. It doesn't matter how, how, what the standard is, you set your own standards and you give it to people and you keep your foot on and you don't apologise because that's not the way things work. Can I just finally talk about the, the, the 2023 draw? Uh, England in a pool with Japan and Argentina. Uh, what, about, what about that and what about the possible crossovers?
4: Uh, well, yeah, you know, I always look at it, mate. You've got to win four big games. You've got to win one big game in your pool and we might have to win two big games with Argentina and, and uh, Japan. Um, everyone in, I'm in Japan at the moment. Everyone's excited. You know They couldn't be happier having England in the, in the pool. And then you've got to win your quarter semi. And, and so, yeah, the pool's are exciting because it, it sort of sets you, your project in place. But it, the reality is nothing's really changed for us. We've got to be at our best. And and that's all you can be, just be at your best.
3: Uh, Ball carrying, just as it comes up. We had a discussion about the variety of ways that defences are broken down. And uh, we agreed at the time that England weren't quite there in terms of their sophistication of ball carrying. They did get there in the last World Cup, but it seems to me either they've been worked out or they're not quite where they were on the variety of the angles and the, 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 the people who take the ball into contact. Where are, we, where are you on that?
4: Yeah, I think you're right there. Look, uh, you know, we were, we were, our attack was at its best in the World Cup because we had that really good preparation time. Um, I think one thing, uh, I just look at a number of sports at the moment. I don't think players are very sharp. Um, and, you know, those little, the little detail, the one or two degrees, a half yard, um, and it's because they're playing back-to-back seasons, mate. And uh, I'm not making excuses for the players, and I'm not making excuses for the team, but that's the reality of sport. I see it in football. I don't see the passing as precise in, in football as as possibly it has been because the players, you know, at the moment, we all know what they've got to do because we've got to keep the sport going, and it's so important. But what they're what they're being asked to do is is pretty uh, pretty pretty huge and I think they're coping with it well and you'll see I reckon in the next 18 months rugby will come back it'll come back to some preciseness in attack and people will get better at attacking rush defences you know even the the 10th worst not worst team best team in the world now you know can rush consistently they can rush from second phase like we made a line break on on second phase against uh Wales on third phase by the time George Ford got the ball, beer was straight on top of him. And that's, that's the change in the defence and you've got to get better at attacking that mate.
3: Uh, leadership. Have you got enough leaders? Where are they? Yeah,
4: yeah no, I think uh, we're taking some really good steps forward. I think, yeah, you know, Owen's uh, maturing as a captain. I thought Maro took a really big step forward um, in the way he led by example, and particularly that final where he was just a colossal for us, um, Mako continues to grow, and, and we've got a few others starting to spur it up. Young Tom Curry's starting to be a greater voice in the team. So I think we're, we're moving in the right direction, but we'd always like to get there a bit quicker, but we're getting there, mate.
3: Eddie, great to speak to you. Thank you very much, mate. Take care. All right. You. Look forward to catching
4: up to you, mate. You. Good
3: man. Well, one of the intriguing prospects, Rob, uh, with the crossovers with it, the- Going to be A versus B and C versus D, runner up against winner of either of the respective pools. Possible quarter finals. Um, well, your money would be on probably England Wales, actually. England is a winner of Group D, Wales is a runner up, possibly of Group C.
2: It's one way to appeal to the Welsh listeners, I guess, isn't it, Brian? You're getting those <laughs> conversations going early. I, I think, think that's, that's the most
3: likely, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's the thing. When you talk about predating a draw two and a half years, these are the types yeah, of I conversations know. you get into, which which is exciting because then every single time you're going to get in England-Wales, you're exactly. talking about that extended yeah. narrative. So I think it is quite cool. Um, I, I'm particularly I'm liking the looks of, of A&B. Um, oh, so, yeah.
3: Well, I mean, at- you're probably going to get uh, some formation of New Zealand, France, South Africa, Ireland, I would think, um, possibly Scotland, but... But, you know, though those are two humongous fixtures, whichever 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 way they fall out.
2: Yeah, I just feel for Paul B. I mean, you're going to be grafting yes. three weekends to try and get through Paul yeah. pool with and it, then South get Africa, get around Scotland. And then you or now got-
3: or the horse. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, that's a horrible thing. It's almost like being given negative pay- pocket one, isn't it? Well, the thing, sure. is, I mean, uh, the, the thing
3: is, I uh, mean, the thing uh, is, and this is a long time as we're saying, but France by that time could it could well be... Could well be around the number one team in the world and at home as daunting, uh, if not more so than New Zealand. Or it could go the other way and France feel the pressure that a World Cup brings on, on host teams and it not go well like it did with England in 2015.
2: I was going to say, I can't think of many examples of that happening, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, But I think that's it, you know, this French team, there's going to be heaps of conversations over the next two and a half years about their growth and development. We saw what was essentially their C team play England and do remarkably well. So the thought of having those guys nurtured and developed, 2023, home crowds, you know what it's like. The French playing in France, there's a reason why it's called partisan, isn't it? It's just carnage.
3: The RFU Chief Executive Bill Sweeney has admitted it was sad and disturbing for the game this week that a number of former players took legal action against the union after being diagnosed with early-onset dementia. Sweeney admitted that the revelations are concerning for the game but insisted that the potential legal action will not financially damage the RFU.
0: A lot of people, most of the people who, who work in the sport, and that includes most of the journalists who who, who write about the sport, Played the sport as well, and and we've all got our previous playing histories on here, and society was different back then, and and the knowledge was different back then, and the awareness of data was different back then, and, uh, and as usual, you can only really focus and and control the things you can control. So we can't control uh, now that uh, uh, those those protocols and those whatever was sitting in place place there. We're really focused on what can we do today, what can we do going forward, and how can we make this. The safest possible game and, and protect it for as, as in the best way we possibly can. It's important to stress and point out. Actually, we haven't received any formal legal approaches yet. So all we're all we're knowledgeable about is what we're reading currently and what we're reading in the media. So we don't have any specific case or, or specific conditions that have been laid out for us. So it's a bit premature, really, and hypothetical to speculate on on what's going and what's going there. Um, and we haven't got into any detailed discussions around insurance or cover because we, we don't know the nature of, of of what's being presented yet.
3: Rob, this is, a, this is a tricky one, isn't it? Because no one has anything but the deepest sympathies for anyone who is suffering from any uh, degenerative brain disease. And yet that's a long way from saying that rugby um, is culpable for it.
2: It is. It's a, it's a really tough place to be, isn't it? Because I get there's so many conversations to have about the process and the Silly the emotions around it, but ultimately it's come out as pretty powerful stories from two very big personalities in the game that, you know, you can't help but feel for. But having read your article and read a lot this weekend about it all, it has to be seen as a process of of the litigation, which is much more formal, unfortunately. And at times, you know, we, we talk about that emotion, but it has to be removed from it.
3: Yes, I mean, you You were assessed as part of this. What was, what was, your, what was your experience?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because I used to play with Alex poppin when I was at Leeds. So he basically canvassed all of his network and contacts to see who, if any of the players, had a significant amount of concussions. Um, I spoke with him quite a bit over the years and I had about eight concussions in my last two years, but more more often than not, was always one of those players that tended to lead him with my face. So... Right. Um, I was, I was shortlisted as someone that needed further exploration. Uh, when talking about the symptoms and side effects, a few flagged up. Um, so from that point on, this was in March 2020, spoke with Richard Boardman, who then said, look, this is the process of what's happening. We've got some really high profile players, um, but clearly the, the main concern is your health. How do you feel? So I went through generally what I was about and spoke a lot with my wife and family around the kind of emotions that that associated with CTE. Um, and not know much about that, uh, as an effect, usually kicks in more um, post five years of retiring. So yes. that was certainly something I flagged because I'm now 35, so retired five years ago, all kind of aligned. And ultimately, just wanted to know more about it. So I then progressed to speak with a neurologist who assessed me virtually, which was a slightly bizarre notion, uh, having a conversation for 40 minutes. And they deemed that there weren't significant enough factors to progress, which actually was a real celebration because yes. my main concern with this is, and you, you'll probably attest to this too, Brian, it's like a horoscope. When people ask you if you feel certain traits, you're almost searching <laughs> yes. those traits. Yes. So I was acutely aware of that. And, and yeah, that's as far as it went. But clearly supporting Alex throughout, and, and I think they're ongoing now with a charity appeal, again, which aligns with what you were saying in your Telegraph article. That is very much going to be the case going
3: forward. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the problems is the, the variety of symptoms. If you look at the uh, stuff that came out of the NFL, it isn't just forgetfulness. It is much more than that. Behavioural changes, People becoming psychotic, people becoming uh, not just um, not just amnesic, but you know significantly so. So they can't actually process elements of their daily life. If you look at the people involved, just in Australia and, and all the other people who who started this off, the examination of them, they went from normal family people, you know, to 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 uh, moments of inexplicable rage and and people tearing things up, to, um, tearing all their memory beer up and so on. So. Um, those sort of things you know are very difficult to um, to live with, but they 're very acute and one of the, one of the problems that is now coming out is that i 'm told by Willie Stewart, who is one of the chief neurologists who was on the working parties to start with, is that they are looking at the um, the consequences being broadened to things like uh, motor neuron disease and, and and other things and and that 's a problem for litigation as well because if you can specify one particular aspect and say yeah this is what it causes it's much easier to to prove it than saying well it causes a whole range of things because then you have to look into the general incidence of those in the wider population it just makes it much more complex and i was just thinking and this was in a telegraph article as well look given at the moment the relatively small number of people involved in this and it is relative and i'm not making light of their symptoms it will be better for the parties to get together and say look Let's look after these people properly. If they've got significant needs, let's help them. Spend the money that way rather than spending it on six years, eight years, which it will be if it gets um, to go through the high court and appeal court and possibly the House of Lords, um, on lawyers who will take millions, um, which will not be seen by any of the people who are actually at the sharp end of this.
2: And I think that's always going to be a conversation you've got to have in the back of your mind because clearly this is, you know, a legal process that are very, very costly. So I think the, the general campaign of what Popham's talking about is it has got the uh, title of Head for Change as the charitable arm to it. And yeah. I think that's right because it's not just the players that clearly go through a lot. It's actually the support family because if you look yes. at what could happen to, you know, dominant male in the household, it's that's where it becomes really emotional. You only have to look at the Robborough cases at the moment and crisis just end up tear-eyed thinking about it. But that is far more impactful than the players and the effect that they're going through. It's, it's much more wide than that, which is why I think the charitable arm, it
3: would be looked at favourably. Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, in terms of the the, the liability of the, of the companies, it isn't on all fours at all with the NFL. The NFL lied. The NFL set their own mild traumatic brain injury committee up, which wasn't properly staffed. It wasn't qualified. It erroneously reported over 15 years that there was no... Um, uh, there was no harm uh, going to become long-term from concussions. And there is evidence that didn't come out in court that they withheld significant uh, evidence that they had and the helmet manufacturers had. That isn't going to be the case here. It's going to be a case of looking at World Rugby and what did it do and what did the unions do around head injury protocols. Because they came in uh, virtually straight away when the... uh, when the NFL litigation started coming out he'll be looking at those now you've I, I, it's unfortunate we can't speak to anyone from that side because I, I want to say to them I have full full support you know for your for your, for your players in, in getting you dealt with in helping you and one of you the, the, but the other side of it is what what, are the, what is actually being proposed to try and limit liability? because I don't think anyone, really wants rugby to change so much out of recognition that it becomes a sport that we don't that you know that, that we we just don't recognize so is it just limiting contact in training sessions which I don't think would be a particularly controversial one is it uh, changes and if so in laws which ones and so on what what, what do you think about that
2: um interesting concept again i get tied into your league backgrounds and what i've known from kind of idolising Leeds Rhinos when we were the sister club at, at Leeds Tykes. They only do about half an hour contact a week. Yeah. Um so they're all about technique, about process, knowing full well when you go into a game, you're gonna you're gonna be good at contact because you have to be. So I think that's an interesting notion. Very different in a rugby union sense with the set piece and the scrimmage engagement and hits and that type of impact and trauma. But the thing that was really remarkable speaking to Popham about it was that they've actually assumed and calculated that he's had around about
3: sub subconcussions.
2: Yes which when you start thinking about that in any format, be it, you know, you're a rally driver or you're a... You can I just explain
3: hearing. for people, just just keep that chain of thought. Some concussions are when you get, uh, you know, little movements of the brain against the skull, but without anyone actually being concussed. So you don't go out, so no one can tell what's happening, but it's called subconcussive concussive trauma. Can, sorry, carry on, Rob.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the thing that the people have to limit because you're limited in terms of your minutes you play regularly. Why, why then would you not look at limiting the amount of contacts you have during the week? And I think that's yeah. a really sensible thing to do anyway, yeah. you know, relevant of, of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think Popham's case really comes to light about looking at the training mechanisms. Because, you know, you've seen how big these men are. Yeah. It's a pretty frightening concept to be training one-on-one with those types of individuals, if you don't necessarily have to.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you Can you see a, a situation where the game is emasculated or not? Um no I think the I thing know, to look sorry at- that, that that is a very pejorative word I I I, I maybe let's just it. Can you can you see a game which is radically different in the future? No and I don't think it will be necessarily
2: that different because essentially the game hasn't changed hugely other than the 1992 law variation which changed how the game was um, governed and refereed which should be interesting to get Nigel's take on actually but just, just to speak about the, the pr- progress that has happened. So the problem with the players at the moment coming forward is that they've played largely from '95 to, say, 2010, up to around that. So very much a different period to, yeah. to say, my generation, which was 2005 to 2015, or yeah. potentially up to 2020. Now, what's happened since then is that this whole sideline assessment conversation has, has gone through. And in 2012, it was actually part of the very first one, where they could withdraw players who were symptomatic of concussion and assess them on the sideline and remove them from play, the HIA typically now. So that SCAT test, as it's known, uh, sports concussion assessment tool, has been really rolled out across the board. It was also aligned with a little bit more of a fluffy one that was previously done for the 10 years prior to that, which was more of a cog sport test. And if people ever known anything about it, it was essentially where the cards, playing cards, were on your screen and you had to look at a baseline reaction. So you could tell if people weren't quite, quite functioning right. Now, what I think this is really important as a general conversation going forward is I also coach my son's team, the under-9s, and they are absolutely looking forward to the world of contact they're going to get into this year. And I think what's really interesting is now conversations I have on the sideline with people that know nothing about rugby, they recognise what concussion looks like a little bit. So they're now in a position as parents and as coaches and referees to say, well, hang on, they don't quite look right. Let's take them away. Whereas before certainly in my childhood that never happened. The concussion just wasn't ever spoken about. Yeah. So that's how I like to see the game's going to change. There's much more education and awareness of what that actually looks like.
3: Well, let's hope whatever the, you know, the the happens in this, that um, we can limit it to a certain period of time, and that thereafter, rugby gets itself into a position where it minimises the risks, insofar as they can. And then um, it will be up to people and and this is a a situation and it's going to be a choice for parents and so on. But I would would stress this and going forward again. When we're talking about the risks of rugby, you've also got to talk about what it gives. So when you're talking, make a decision for your son or your daughter as to whether or not they do an activity, you don't just say, oh, there are risks there. You say, those are risks, contextualise them, you know, how, how serious are they and what are the benefits? And then you make your own decision, but not just, not just on a risk basis.
1: Yeah,
2: I think Lewis Moody absolutely nailed that in his column this week, speaking about, I understood those decisions. I played like a madman, but that was just my way of enjoying the game. And I think that has to be at the forefront of decisions for players and parents, certainly.
1: Full contact in association with Mitsubishi Motors. Everyone's ambitions are different. You can climb to the top. Or you could take on uphill battles of a different kind. You can explore for hundreds of miles. Or you could begin a bigger journey. You can make time fly. Or you could make it stand still. The Mitsubishi SUV Range. Drive your ambition.
3: In partnership with England Rugby, uh, Mitsubishi Motors runs a volunteer recognition programme to provide the rugby community with opportunities to recognise and reward the volunteers who are the heartbeat of the game. Throughout the autumn, in association with Mitsubishi, I will be chatting to a selection of rugby volunteers to hear their stories and to shine a light on the brilliant work they've been doing during these most challenging of times. My guest for the eighth instalment is Kate Nichols, head coach of Whitney Wolves. Kate, hi. Look, as a a head coach of uh, of Whitney Walls, could you tell us more about your day to day role uh, and uh, what sort of support you've been receiving to get uh, integrated into the wider club?
5: Okay, so to be honest, my um, role as a head coach is pretty much like every other head coach. Um, I try and give my players the best experience on the pitch that I can give them, Um, and obviously there's lots of sort of pastoral things going on behind the scenes, especially at the moment. Whitney is an absolutely amazing club and they have been just just faultless in their support of us. Um, so with the RFU, I've got to say. Um, so we do feel extremely lucky and extremely supported um, and we're totally integrated. That was kind of my main aim uh, when I became head coach was that we were not a peripheral team or not a kind of sideline team or not a kind of box-ticking exercise, but we were you know, right in the mix with the rest of the teams at the club.
3: Because what, what makes the Wolves is the, uh, special?
5: One made them special, um, oh gosh, how long have you got um, they 're absolutely amazing I think the the club um benefits as much from the wolves as the wolves benefits from the club. Um, I think it 's really rugby at its very best. Um, forget egos and sort of politics and all that kind of thing, my players play for the absolute sheer joy of playing rugby. Um, and I think sometimes it's, it's easy to lose that, isn't it? Um, and so often when we have teams from around the club come and play with us, I see just such sheer joy on their faces because they've remembered exactly why they love to play the sport.
3: Because the special uh, educational needs teams have different uh, demands of the coaching. My uh... Daughters play at uh, Wimbledon. They have a special needs team. Uh, p- people travel 50 miles to come yeah. to come for that. Um, why do you think it's so important to make rugby accessible to uh, to SEN uh, people?
5: I think to be honest in some ways we kind of turn it around and say well why shouldn't we be making it accessible you know um, they want to they want to play rugby and you know community rugby is about serving the community so we should be making sure that anyone who wants to play can play and like i said i genuinely believe that these players give as much back to the game as we can offer them
3: what are the um because there have to be slight differences uh, in approaches to how you do that, or or tell me other. do you approach it in exactly the same way you did, or what, what sort of allowances do you have to make?
5: It's just a good question. So I would say you do have to make sure you've got plenty of coaches because we've got a really varied squad. so we've got two, two teams, a seniors and the juniors, um but we have a massive range of ability. So we don't play contact, I know some some teams do, we don't, we play a mix of touch and tag. Um, But obviously I've got some very, very skilled, competent players who need to be stretched and then I've got players who won't be able to make it down the pitch, you know, without the assistance of two coaches probably. So you've got a, a really big range to kind of of work out. Um, but other than that, all, it's really important. I always stress that nobody who's ever coached the Wolves at Whitney has ever had any specific SEN training. We've all come from a rugby background. We all got hooked in, in you know, for various reasons. And once you're in, you just—it's so addictive you can't stop. But we've all just gone through the the RFU training, which I just think is. Brilliant, um, and that's what we base it on.
3: Um, well, you were selected via the uh, Mitsubishi Motors Volunteer Recognition Program to run a coaching session in front of Eddie Jones last year. What was that like?
5: Terrifying, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was terrifying, but it was absolutely brilliant. There were 12 of us, and we all came from completely different backgrounds, coaching all sorts of different teams. Um, and it was a really lovely experience to meet all those other coaches, um, but also to meet Phil Kearns from the RFU, who is this just amazing coaching lead. Um, but also, I mean, Eddie James is just beyond inspirational. He just makes it so. He cuts to the quick of it all, you know. He is so inspiring. He says, you know, it doesn't matter who you're coaching. You're, you coach the team in front of you, which is such a powerful. So, he did, so
3: it was interactive. You did get to speak to him, yes. and he gave, you know, he. He gives something back and so on.
5: Absolutely. So we spoke to him before. We sat down and had a cup of coffee with him. Um, then he watched us coach and he gave us all individual feedback. Um, he said, you know, keep things really simple. Um, repeat, you know, repeat things, repetition all the time with a variation, really drill things home. And he said, ultimately, and that was the thing that really stuck with me. He said, ultimately, you know, as a coach, you are there to serve your players. And if you are giving them the best possible experience on the pitch in the safest possible environment, then you really can't go too far wrong. I think it's a really powerful message.
3: Look, it's been great to speak to you. Your uh, enthusiasm shines through, Kate. Uh, Keep up uh, the good work, keep up what you're doing um, and keep Whitney Wolves going forward.
5: Thank you very much for the invitation, Brian. It was lovely to chat to you. Thank you. For more
3: details about the Mitsubishi Motors volunteer recognition programme with England Rugby, visit www.englandrugby.com forward slash participation forward slash volunteers. Time to speak to, well, he was a regular contributor. I hope he will be in the future because he's got a bit more time on his hands now. Uh, recently retired, the first referee to reach 100 test matches. You know who he is. Nigel Owens. Hello, Nigel. Hello, Brian. How are you? Long time oh, to speak. It is a long time. Uh, what was behind the decision to retire?
6: Yeah, quite a few things, to be honest, Brian. <laughs> Age probably being one of them. Um I don't think people sort of appreciate really um, the commitment that is to refereeing at that, that level, You're traveling away from home so much, you know, the discipline in training, your diet and, and everything that goes with it and the pressures of it as well. Um, and as well, I you know, I wasn't going to be around for 2023. Um, don't really want to be around for 2023 because I, I know I, I just can't commit to that time away Um anymore because i got the farm here at home you know got family and friends i I need to spend time with which you know i haven't been doing for the last sort of nearly 20 years at, at, at that level um and they obviously then have to plan for 2023 to bring younger new referees through as well um so you know there are quite a few um decisions really that 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 were part of it and um I, to be honest, I would—I was hoping to, to referee in the Six Nations and then finish the season sort of naturally then at the test match level in that uh, Six Nations window. But it, it wasn't to be. And then after reflecting a bit about it all, I thought, well, you know, what a better way to go out than, than on your 100th, 100th test match, you know, because um, the last thing you want to do is, is referee a game when you finish and uh, all the controversy and you remember for that last game. <laughs> so, you know, that game went well and it was... Uh, It was a nice game to finish as well on the 100. Uh, There's something about 100 and out, is there, rather than 101 and out? Fair enough. I just wondered this Um, given the
3: atypical nature of the games you've been refereeing in Empty Stadia, whether you'd want to actually get one out of the way in full to a full crowd so they could give you the undoubted round of applause or otherwise, you know, um, make it plain, you know, what they thought and then how much you appreciated.
6: Yeah, that, that would be nice, you know, as long as the game went well and they weren't booing that would be great, yes, but um, yes, you know, that, that would have been nice and I know I'm still going to referee the Pro 14 till the end of the season, um, hopefully, if I'm selected. Um, so, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to, to referee a game towards the end of the season, the Pro 14, hopefully by then we'll have the crowds back. Um, I'm not quite sure what's happening with Judgment Day this year, if it's going to happen, if it is and the crowd's going to be there, then... And if I would be involved in one of those games, then then great, it would be a nice way to to finish. Yeah, so it would be nice to finish, um, you know, with 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 the, with the spectators um, and be part of of that atmosphere and and occasion, which does make it, you know, very very special. I think if, if anybody had any doubt, like the players are the most important part of the game, um, but I think also as well as important as them um, is are the spectators because I think we've seen now in this last sort of ten. Ten minutes or so. That you know, it's not the same without the spectators. So, if anybody had any doubt how important spectators are to the game at all levels of the game, then there shouldn't be any doubt now. So, it would have been nice to do that, and, and hopefully, you know, I'll get an opportunity towards the end of the season in the Pro 14 to do that. Hopefully, yeah.
2: And as it's Rob Vickerman, I certainly hope so. You get another chance. Just, just a question: with what World Rugby tend to do with referees who perhaps are hanging the whistle up, the mentoring program, passing on your knowledge and wisdom, and hopefully some of your one-liners. Has, has that been something spoke about?
6: Um, no, not really. No, to be honest, I'm going to be doing that with the Welsh Rugby Union. It's, it's something that was part of the of the plan, to be honest, or part of the discussions from you know a couple of years ago. That when I did hang up the whistle, that I would move into a coaching role within the Welsh Rugby Union, looking after a couple of the the young referees we have and one or two of the referees in the academy system we have here um, in Wales. And um, I've started doing that already. The last of the season or so, anyway. But obviously now, with more time, I, I'll get more into it now, and I'll be looking after probably two or three, two of the professional referees, and maybe one or two then below that as well, in bringing them through. Now, whether it'll be something like that that World Rugby would like me to get involved with, I, I honestly don't know. I haven't had those discussions with with, with anybody around that. But certainly from the World Rugby Union point of view, yeah, that that's what is going to be happening, and that will that is happening now. Really, to be honest, Nigel,
3: you, you mentioned. Uh, I'm sure I read this. You thought about uh hoping for a family. Now if that were to be the case, which which route would it be surrogacy, adoption or what?
6: Yeah, it's a good question, Brian. It's uh, something that um you know, we started discussing myself and my my partner Ari. Um and obviously now we've you know, that's probably the part, another part of the equation where I, I don't I don't want to be away so much uh, um, you know, on the refereeing side of things. Um um We've started discussing about it, and I'm I'm probably more inclined along the the surrogate side of things, I I would think, you know. Um, You know, I I remember Glenn Jackson and a few of the other boys, you know, particularly because when when we were in the World Cup in 2015 and even 2019, I'm 2011 as well, um, you know, families came over and the kids were there, and i spent a lot of time with the kids, playing cards with them, or sometimes even babysitting, you know, whilst whilst their parents, you know, went out for a a night out or something, you know, and... um, and a lot of them told me, Glenn Jackson told me, you'd make a great dad, you, you you must become a dad one day. And I said, well, I don't know, you know, at least now I can give the kids back when you've had enough. When you're a dad, you yeah, can't yeah, do that. So yeah. it is something we are discussing, and, and yeah, you know, we, we are discussing the options of it. And, you know, when we're ready to take it further, then we have to really sit down and and see how it goes with a surrogacy or adoption or, or maybe the both. You know, we, 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 we don't know yet. So that'll be... Um, an ongoing discussion, really. You know, as as the time goes by now.
3: Well, thanks for being candid. I'll just put my two penny in on that. You know, I'm the product of uh, of an adoption from an adopted family of of, of, of two natural and four. Um, so they can work, um, and 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 they they, they can be of, of great benefit to to all round. Look, let, let, yeah. let, let's let's just stick to the. This is a final question. Um, out of a hundred games, um, can you give us two or three highlights? No. Oh. Yeah, New Zealand, oh, yeah. South, South Africa, New Zealand. That, that yeah, break.
6: Definitely, definitely South Africa, New Zealand in twenty thirteen in Ellis Park. You know because that'll go down as one of the great games of all time. And people like Steve Hansen, McCall, and these tell me every time I see them, you know that that's the greatest game they've seen or been involved in. And um, a lot of people say the same thing. So definitely that one. And obviously then the the World Cup, the World Cup final then would um, would be probably the, the highlight of it all I would think not so much well I think it was a great final it was probably the, it's probably the best World Cup final i've actually been it's probably the best tournament that has been as, as far as quality and stuff goes and the rugby played in 2015 and then probably another game Brian which which it's, it's not a test match but I'll tell you why it's in highlight because to me this sums up what rugby is all about I was asked um, I want to do a Q and a myself and Dan Lidiet in um, Pencourt Rugby Club on a Wednesday night and uh, we were meeting these sort of junior section first and then the the adult version later on <clears throat> and um, the coach of the under 12s in Penkoy said oh we in about 5 weeks time we're playing a big cup game against Cumbrian at both unbeaten sides in in Wales all the way through the age groups would you mind coming ref in that game i said well yeah if i can i will and then i won't tell the boys and be a surprise when you turn up so it happened to be i was appointed to referee Leicester against Ulster in the last pool game, qualifying game up in Welford Road on the Saturday night 5.30 kickoff. So I ran the I said, look, I'm refereeing at half past five on Saturday night. I'll, I'll drive home after the game because Derek Bevan stuff was my team for many years and we, we always had a rule that wherever we referee, we stayed at a few beers, at night in, in Europe. So I said, I'll, I'll travel back after the game. I won't get back over one or two o'clock in the morning. It's about four or five hour drive. If you could delay the kickoff at an hour or two on a Sunday morning, I'll come and do the game. So anyway, got back from Leicester, they moved the kickoff from 10.30 back to 12. Got a pen code, went in the changing rooms. Kids didn't know I was arriving the pictures on the face was a picture like you know that some of the jaws are dropping and oh my god is Nigel Owens going to referee us and this and that and and then as I go around the changing just checking the boots just you know making it all feel a bit special for them and uh Little winger sitting in the corner of the changing room just said, ah, oh. he said, I hope you're going to referee this game better today than you did last night. <laughs> <laughs> I thought to myself,
5: you know, this,
6: is what, this is what makes it so special. You know, they, This guy doesn't care. All he wants is that I referee his game. <laughs> but he's fine, you know. And, and to me, that would be a highlight as well, Brian, as well as the many, many others.
3: Oh, that's a brilliant story to end on. Thank you. Nigel, I hope you'll uh, come on a podcast uh, uh, again in the future. Mate, that, uh, congratulations on the hundred. And, and everything else that comes after.
6: Yeah, thanks, Brian, and ho- look forward to chatting to you again soon. All the best.
3: Time very quickly to move on to the Champions uh, Cup roundup. Two favourites, Exeter and Leinster, uh, picked up uh, wins on the opening weekend. Um, very difficult to make anything out of this at the, at the very early stages, but d- do you expect these two sides to be there or thereabouts in the end? I do, actually.
2: I think, you know, when you're looking at this new format, which, you know, would take a whole show in itself to explain, but essentially the fact that Toulouse were finished, uh, finished seventh, Montpellier eighth in the top 14 means that there's some really juicy group games, whereas normally there'd be a few walkovers. Yeah. In this one, you need to be winning every game to qualify, but I think, yeah, you're not going to be far off. Exeter just looks stunning. I guess playing down in Sandy Park with fans is always going to be uh, a powerful game. hell of a test for them this weekend upcoming. Take it on Toulouse, I think it's going to be a really, really cracking tournament. And I like the format, it's fresh, it's different, and every game feels like there's a little bit more to play for for the top And, and of
3: course, this season has always got the Six Nations and Lions to us on the horizon as well. Everything, uh, you know, in the end will we'll bow down to that, won't it?
2: God, we're not shy rugby this year. Yeah. No. I know we've had eight months of absolute pain, but this is going to be some build-up isn't it we're looking yeah. at basically the next six seven months just been jam-packed every weekend which is exactly where we want to be so kudos to the organisers can't imagine it's been easy at all and it's just great to see these teams going at it but I do have to say what is it with the French and a Champions Cup format because it just seems to be they just go to different levels of performance it must be partly they do, inspiring they do apart, from the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apart from
3: the finals
2: yeah apart from the finals yeah um, but that's a wonderful prospect. I actually put Glasgow Leon this weekend. Actually, so looking forward to see how Leon are going to go. They're kind of coming uh, up the ranks, finished really well in the top fourteen. Are unknown compared to some of the others yeah. in the in the Hanneken Cup. But I think it's going to be great, great spectacle this year for sure.
3: Well, that's all we have time for on Brian Moore's full contact this week with the Telegraph. A huge thank you to my co-host Rob Vickerman and all. I guess I tell you, I like Rob because you always get something different. He's got a different take. He's got a different philosophy. Um, a great co host. Listen, if you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe? Check out some of our previous episodes and stay up to date on all things sport. You can head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash contact, where listeners can get 30 days access to all the Telegraph's premium sports coverage completely free. But for now, it's goodbye.
1: Full contact. In association with Mitsubishi Motors, drive your ambition.